All right, tonight we turn our attention to the transfiguration. Uh, such a, 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 um, a climactic, well, no, not climactic, such a significant event in the life of Jesus and such a strange event at the same time. I don't know that I'll answer all the questions you might have about this particular event tonight, but we're going to spend some time examining what happens at this particular occasion. It is recorded in three of the four Gospels. It's recorded in all of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We'll read each account because they're fairly brief, and then we'll spend some time uh, examining this particular story tonight. But let's, uh, for those of you who are note takers, um, go ahead and let you know there's not much to my PowerPoint tonight. There's only going to be uh, our title slide, the verses, and one other um, graphic for, for, for you to view. I did not put together a very significant PowerPoint tonight just because I had some constraints on me on, over the past uh, 10 days or so. So uh, please, I apologize for that. But uh, I want to give you the heads up that if you're taking notes, don't rely on PowerPoint tonight. With that being said, let's start reading Matthew's account. Matthew chapter 17 and the first nine verses will be our focus. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Let's look at Mark's account, which is recorded in the ninth chapter, verses 2 through 10. Mark's account says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept, to the, matter, kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. And finally, this is Luke's account in chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 28 through 36. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to, to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now the first thing I want to address with this particular account is where did it occur? Where did the transfiguration occur? 
Now, here is a map of Galilee that someone put together. It's, there's a, not something I made, but someone else did. And you can see it's a topographical uh, image. You can pinpoint it particularly, the Sea of Galilee over here with Capernaum, which has been the major uh, uh, center of operation for Jesus for much of his ministry. Uh, but what you need to know also is, I believe it would be out this way off our screen, is where the town of Caesarea Philippi would be. And if you recall, in the events prior, or not recall, but if you look back in the events immediately before the transfiguration, Jesus had just gone to Caesarea Philippi, and he was returning from there. And so that helps give us, give us some context for, he's, he's in Caesarea, he's over on the coast, and now he's returning to Galilee. That gives us some context for, for helping determine where this took place. Three different mountains have been suggested for the location of this event. The traditional site, if you were to go to Israel today and were to go visit the place they claim it happened, the traditional site would be Mount Tabor down here. You can see it's not far from the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of in between the coast over here and the Sea of Galilee. And so Mount Tabor is the traditionally held site of the Transfiguration located in the middle of Galilee. It's only about six miles southwest of Nazareth. Some significance there in the fact that Jesus was born and was raised in Nazareth, so this mountain wouldn't be that uh, far removed from, from an area he's familiar with, that sort of thing. However, even though this is the traditional site um, that people would take you to, it's kind of problematic. It's, it's problematic in the fact that it, it's really kind of far away from Caesarea Philippi which is where Jesus was immediately before the transfiguration. It's about a three-day journey from Caesarea Philippi to uh, Mount Tabor. Um, and and uh, the other issue with it is it's not a very tall peak. It's only a, about 1,900 feet tall. And it's interesting because when Matthew describes where Jesus is, he says in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, that he was up on a high mountain. This is not... A high mountain at only 1,900 feet. And um, the other issue with it is if you look at Luke's account, Luke describes this event as something Jesus has kind of taken these three apostles away to. They're in solitude. They're, they seem to be alone. They're there for the purpose of praying. All these factors, very reminiscent of some other occasions in Jesus's life where he just wanted to retreat a little bit. But the problem with Mount Tabor is that in the first century, there was a town at the top of Mount Tabor. So they would have not really been that alone. It would not have been that much of a, a place of solitude. So there are some issues with Mount Tabor. That's not to say that it can't be Mount Tabor, just that there are some, some issues with it. The, the, the other um, peak that is often associated with the Transfiguration is Mount Hermon, which you'll see up at the top of our screen. It kind of gets cut off but it's due north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the problem, uh, or the, the reason Mount Hermon is appealing is because in all this area, Israel and, and Syria, which Mount Hermon sits in, all this area below the Sea of Galilee, all this area north of the Sea of Galilee, Mount Hermon is the tallest peak. I showed a couple weeks ago when we, did it, when we studied um, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, I showed a picture of the Sea of Galilee with Mount Hermon in the distance. It is a 9,000-foot peak that is snow-capped and quite beautiful, actually. It, it is the tallest mountain in the whole region. And so when Matthew says he went up on a high mountain, Mount Hermon fits that description. There are some problems with Mount Hermon. It, too, is, is quite a distance away from, from uh, the route that would take you from the coast to uh, Capernaum. In particular, that's not really in route, but that doesn't mean Jesus wouldn't go there. Mount Hermon also being as tall as it is, is a very uh, rugged ascent, a very difficult ascent. And it actually kind of sounds like when you read uh, Luke's gospel, it almost sounds like they ascended and descended almost the same day. And that's not something you would do in, at Mount Hermon in particular, um, at least not in a, a, a quick turnaround, I should say. And um, the, the other issue with Mount Hermon is that it would not be located in, prime, in, in predominantly Jewish territory. 
once you got up to Mount Hermon, you're entering Gentile territory. You're, you're entering uh, Canaanite territory, if you will. It's going to be less Jewish population there. Why does that matter? It matters only because <coughs> in the events immediately uh, following uh, our, our transfiguration story, we're told that scribe, according to Mark's account, Mark chapter 9 and verse 14, there is Jewish scribes present at the base of the mountain when Jesus descends. And there's an event that unfolds there that they're a part of. And it's quite, it, it doesn't make sense to some degree that Jewish scribes would, tr would want to travel into Gentile territory. I mean, these are the guys who did not want to enter the house of a Gentile, who took issue when Jesus was dining with Matthew, the tax collector, and things like that, or with Zacchaeus. You know, thing. These are the guys that were uncomfortable with anyone who would be deemed unclean. And so the fact that they would travel up into Gentile territory is somewhat um, illogical, but not necessarily completely out of the realm of possibility. And so some people argue that Mount Hermon provides some difficulties because of its uh, the because of uh, how difficult it would be to climb, because of uh, it, the fact that it's located in Gentile territory and, and Jewish scribes would be unlikely to go there. The third possibility is um, Mount Marin here that you see. It's, an, it's nearly 4,000 feet tall, which makes it a pretty sizable uh, mountain. In fact, in, in, the, in, in the... How do I say this? In what would be known as Israel proper in the first century... Uh, the area that would be considered parts of, of Israel territory. Uh, I think even during the reigns of, uh, 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 in the Old Testament, of, of the kings in the Old Testament, this was the tallest mountain in Israel proper. Um, and so it's just due west of the, or due northwest of the Sea of Galilee, not very far from the Sea of Galilee, as a matter of fact, eight miles from the Sea of Galilee. It, it is like Mount Tabor, situated between the coast in the Sea of Galilee, and so it, it, it might be uh, possible that this is a location, um, because it, it, the, here's what it boils down to. We don't have a clue. We don't know what mountain Jesus went to for the transfiguration. Uh, we just know that he did go to a mountain, and he went there for the purpose of praying with his apostles, and um, this unique event unfolded. But it's often interesting to try to explore geography in the context of Jesus' life, to get a feel for his movements and where he's been, and sometimes being, being able to identify options like these gives you a better appreciation for uh, what's going on. I mean, if it was Mount Hermon, they could be up there. Uh, they may not have gone to the peak because it was, it's a, a snow-capped peak, and uh, I, I don't necessarily know that they want to be... Uh, uh, climbing in icy conditions, that sort of thing. So it's, it's interesting to explore geography for me, and so I think sometimes uh, it can be helpful to us to envision the locale of where Jesus is because it's, it's a terrain that's not necessarily like ours in a region that we can't visualize all the time. But I just wanted to throw that out there for a little bit. But let's, let's stop talking about location and let's start talking about the people who are present. Because there's only going to be three people who witnessed this event. And we know them as Peter, James, and John. Sometimes we refer to these guys as the inner circle. These three guys get to witness three events that nobody else witnesses, or at least no other apostle in particular witnesses. Besides the transfiguration, do you know the other events that these three guys are the only ones to witness? Not the empty tomb. Because some women witnessed that. Well, that's fair. Um, but James did not go to the empty tomb. It was Peter and John. But you're close. Because it is an end of Jesus' ministry event. One of them. Anybody? We've actually ad addressed one of them a few weeks ago. The raising of Jairus' daughter. These three guys were welcomed into the room with Jesus when he brought that young girl back to life. The other one, uh, other significant event would be um, in the Garden of Gethsemane where they're selected to go with Jesus a little further away 
than the other apostles. It's actually a very reminiscent event of this one. The Garden of Gethsemane and this has some similarities in that Jesus selects these three to go a little further with him to pray. So, interesting. But these three guys become kind of significant, and, and it's worth, Emily did mention um, the, the resurrection. Peter and, and, and John have such an intimacy with, with, with Jesus that they run, they race uh, to the tomb. These are the two guys, John in particular, likely sitting next to Jesus at the Last Supper, and then Peter communicating with John. And according to John's gospel, Peter and John are, are communicating, trying to find out from, from Jesus who this uh, betrayer is going to be. There is this intimacy that these three guys uh, have with Jesus. And we hear more about Peter and John in the grand scheme, likely because they lived long enough to tell their story, and James did not, being the one that was beheaded in Acts chapter 12. So there, there's something special about Peter, James, and John and their relationship with Jesus. I've always felt bad for Andrew. I mean, these, when you add Andrew in the mix, those are the, the original four. It's like Andrew gets a bad rap. He just gets kicked out. We'll, we'll take three of the first four and leave the other one out. I, I just always felt bad for Andrew in that regard. But maybe, maybe, uh, maybe, Andrew, that, maybe that was Andrew's humility involved in there somewhere. I don't know. But I often pose the question, when you see just these three, these three guys in these uh, events like Jairus' daughter and, and praying in the garden where they, they get this special significance or this special attention from Jesus, it makes you wonder why, in the context of this story in particular, why were the three, these three apostles the only ones permitted to witness the transfiguration? The most plausible explanation that I came across is that, the, that by keeping the numbers of observers small, Jesus could more easily prevent the retelling of this event until the time was right for that to occur. You notice, I believe it's Matthew's account, where he orders them, commands them not to tell anyone what they experienced until what? His resurrection. The more people that know, the harder it is to keep something quiet. And he, he specifically ordered them not to talk about this until he came back from the dead. And so maybe there's that motivation involved. Maybe it's intentional to keep the numbers reduced so that word doesn't escape too soon. And that I can't fully say. Share your thought. I, the one area where I wonder about how easy is it going to be for people to believe that Moses and Elijah appeared from the dead? Or, I shouldn't even say appeared from the dead. Appeared from the beyond. Let's just say it that way, because, well, Elijah didn't die. Is there, is there wait till my resurrection, because then, once, I, once I've risen, people will believe that these other two guys could have actually been there. I, I wonder if there's some connection to that even. I don't have an answer for that. Not just 
not just that, that he was with Christ, but that he was pronounced inferior to Christ at this event, which we'll talk about more. The other thing that I do ponder about is, and we'll get more into what, to Peter's comments in just a moment, uh, but how there's this element in which Peter um, may have even wanted to worship Moses and Elijah here. And maybe don't tell everybody because this is their, the reaction that it brings. This misunderstanding of my comparison to these two significant figures. There's, there's so many questions that this event does bring up. And like I said, I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions on this one. Um, it is interesting, though, that Peter would later write in his own letters, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, he would, he would say, we were witnesses of his majesty. And it, that terminology seems to be an allusion, at the very least, to what happens here with Jesus' transfiguration. And John would write in his gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 14, he seems to be referencing to this as well when he said, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it seems he may be making a reference here to that too. So they both Peter and John, who lived um, long enough to write about their experiences, do seem to, in fact, make reference to the transfiguration. Um, I do think there's another element in that he had these three apostles. In the Old Testament, how do you confirm the validity of an event? Two or three witnesses, that sort of thing. So he had just enough to ensure he had enough witnesses to prove what happened valid, and few enough from being a story that spiraled out of control. Um, so I, whether or not that's the objective of Jesus here, I don't know. Uh, that's um, the, the most plausible thing that I ever came across in my studies of this. Now, the other thing that's interesting about the transfiguration is, is, is talking about what actually happens. What transfigures? Uh, Matthew indicates that the transfiguration affected Jesus' face and his clothes. Uh, verse 2 says, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Luke says that uh, as Jesus was praying, his appearance of his face altered. He doesn't define what altering appearance means. He just says his appearance was, of his face was altered, and his clothing, clothing became dazzling white. And then Mark is the one only references his clothes, but does so in a, in a way that really resonates with us in a modern world and talks about how they were so in, radiant and intensely white that it, no one could bleach them that much. I don't know why, but I've always appreciated the reference to bleach here because I can comprehend that. I can comprehend what, what bleaching something purely white is like. And those are interesting um, descriptions of what happens to Jesus. Altered facial appearance— that, that at the very least involves shining, and then, of course, clothing that becomes radiantly white. Now, the Greek word for transfigured here is metamorphu, uh, which is the term from which we get metamorphosis. It's uh, also a term that's simply translated transformed in Romans chapter 12. So transfigured, transformed seem to be terms that are uh, mutual or that... Uh, that uh, are the same thing. Metamorpho is a, a Greek term that indicates a change on the outside that comes from the inside. A change on the outside that comes from the inside. That's why we apply it to the process a caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly. It's a, cha a, uh, it's a change that occurs inside that chrysalis um, that then uh, affects the outward appearance of the insect that was inside. So Jesus's Transfiguration is this unique change that does affect his outward appearance, but it has something to do with him on the inside. It radiated from within him, as one author said. One, one author described this event as a physical transformation that is a reminder of Jesus' pre-incarnate glory and a preview of his coming exaltation. A transfiguration that revealed his divine nature and glory as God. I've often mentioned that, that Jesus had to set aside some divine prerogatives in order to become human uh, with examples such as the 
um, omnipresence and things like that. Um, and we have to remember that, that Jesus was, was God. Think back to when um, Moses asked to see God. What was he told? When Moses asked to see God, what he was told was, you can't see me and live. So what did God, let it, what did God do? Hey, you stand over here in this rock. I'll pass before you. Showed him his back. Moses got to see more of God than anybody else did. And all he got to see was God's back. Because God's glory is just that great. Now, it's, it's almost like in this moment, the apostles got a glimpse, of a very small, minor uh, glimpse of Jesus' true glory as God in the flesh. And there is some uh, reminiscence of what happened to Moses whenever he would stand before God. When, when Moses would enter the tabernacle and go into the most holy place, what happened to him? His face would shine. And what did he have to do? He'd have to wear a veil. A guy wearing a veil, it just seems weird. But that's what he had to do because being in the presence of God did that to him. And so there's some sort of level of, of uh, similarity here. But it's interesting because that happened to Moses when he was in God's presence. This happened to Jesus almost because, from my vantage point, because Jesus was the presence of God, if you know what I mean. Now, God is present here because God's going to speak, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But uh, it, we, we have this comparison to Moses' story. Of course, Moses and Elijah play prominently in the transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, verse 3 tells us that Moses and Elijah appear, but they don't just appear. They talk to Jesus. You probably have the one question that I have that I'm, I'm not going to get answered until I get to heaven, but how did... How did Peter, James, and John know it was Moses and Elijah? I will always ponder that. I mean, were they wearing name tags or something? Did Moses, did Moses appear holding the tablets of the testimony so that it was, it was evident that this is the guy who, who uh, brought them down from the mountain? Was, was Elijah there with the, uh, uh, being escorted in on a chariot of fire? I, you know, who knows? But they, but they recognized them without any problem. And when you have loved, here's the thing, I'm disappointed in Peter, Peter, James, and John because they're sleeping in a moment where you and I want to be eavesdropping. You have the opportunity to hear a conversation between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and you're too tired to pay attention. Man, I'd love to know what they talked about. But it's very significant that these guys are here. Moses was the great lawgiver of Israel who prophesied that a prophet like him would come from among Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Elijah was one of God's greatest prophets who was well known for his opposition to Baal during the reign of King Ahab. And these two guys are on the scene. Think about it. God could have brought anybody back for this event. God could have had anybody present. He could have chosen Abraham. He could have chosen David. He could have chosen any Old Testament hero, but he chose these two, and it has to be on purpose. There has to be some significance to why Moses and Elijah are, are the ones that are here. And I'm going to share with you four significant reasons why these two guys are in this scene. Four, four uh, reasons why it's theologically significant that Moses and Elijah are at the transfiguration. Number one, because they were the key representatives of the law and the prophets. Jesus will often use that terminology in his teaching. He'll refer to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. That's the big breakdown or the easy breakdown of how the Old Testament was constructed for, for the Jews. They actually had three categories. They, they had the law, the prophets, and sometimes they had a third category called the writings. But oftentimes they would just dwindle it down to the law and the prophets 
the writings would be included with the prophets. The writings were usually a reference to uh, what we often call wisdom literature and things like that, and some historical books as well. But the law and the prophets was the way they referred to the entirety of God's Word that, that comprised what we know of as the Old Testament. And Moses and Elijah were the key representative, representatives of the law and the prophets. Let me uh, pull up a couple of references real quick to show you what I'm meaning. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. I just want you to see this terminology of law and prophets. When Jesus gives the golden rule, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We cut off that last part usually when we're quoting it, though. But that's how significant this terminology is. Also, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 40, another passage that you will probably recognize with ease. Matthew chapter 22, verse 40. Actually, we need to get verse 37 and 38, 39. Verse 37 of Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Actually, I added strength because, anyway. Verse 38, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus used this terminology quite a bit. And here's the thing. Moses represented the law. Moses was the, the one who brought the law from God to the people. Elijah was like the, the leader of the prophets in the minds of Israel. He was that first great prophet who stood up and challenged a king. Now, there are other great prophets that come after him and other prophets that would be more literary prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, guys like that. There were other great prophets, but he was the, the first, like, big guy. Now, you can think back, Nathan was a prophet. He preceded Elijah. But Elijah was the leader of Israel to a large degree or the leader of the faith in a, in a faithless time. And so there's something about Elijah that, st that stood out in their minds. Their so the presence of Moses and Elijah, and especially their disappearance, symbolized that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets. It's very significant that, when, um, uh, that there's this moment after the voice speaks from heaven, when Peter, James, and John look up, Moses and Elijah aren't there anymore. It's just Jesus. And the sim symbolism there is that these guys are inferior to him. He is the summation of the law and the prophets. It's also important to note that, that Moses and Elijah, this is the second significant thing about them being there, they were two of the three Old Testament individuals whose end of life was overseen by God. Let me explain what I mean. Moses, we're told, died, but nobody was there to witness it. In fact, it's in um, Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 5 and 6, that we're told that Moses was taken by God, that God orchestrated his burial. And this led to the first century belief that in his assumption that, that maybe he actually didn't die, that, that God just took him. Now, we know of Elijah's case. I kind of alluded to it a moment ago. After he recruited Elisha, and they're walking along, and all these prophets are telling Elisha, hey, Elijah's going to leave you today. And, and Elisha is just waiting for the opportunity to witness it. And that chariot comes along and scoops up Elijah and takes him into heaven. Elijah never technically died. One other guy didn't die. Who was it? Enoch. Now, Enoch doesn't get mentioned here. But that's because the, there's other significances of Moses and Elijah involved. But, but it's interesting because Luke will tell us, what did Luke say Moses and Elijah were discussing with Jesus? Anybody remember? Anybody have it open? His departure. These are two guys whose departure was totally under the control of God. And now they're, stand, they're here talking with Jesus about his departure, which is going to be totally controlled by God. 
I find that to be significant. I find that to be interesting, to be unique. The other thing to note, if you recall, if you look back in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, the event that immediately precedes the transfiguration is the great confession. When Peter says, when Jesus, well, excuse me, when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. What happened in the conversation after the confession? Jesus told the apostles something was going to happen to him. What did he tell them was going to happen to him? That he was going, he was going to be killed. And what did Peter do? Peter said, no way! I'm not going to let that happen. Anyway, just before the transfiguration, Jesus started telling his apostles about his departure. And now here he is on the mountain with two people who God oversaw the departure of, who are discussing his departure with him. So all this just is unique how it's tied together. In fact, the term translated departure in Luke's gospel receives the same translation in 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse 15. And is also translated as Exodus in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 22. I find that interesting that it can be, be translated Exodus as well. But anyway, just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, the, another significant thing about Moses and Elijah here is they both experienced revelations of God on a very particular mountain, on Mount Horeb, also known as Anybody? Mount Sinai. It's interesting because mountaintops played a key role in the life of Moses and Elijah, but especially Mount Sinai. Uh, but Moses received the law on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24 and 34 because he had to go get it a second time. Moses viewed the promised land from a mountaintop, from Mount Nebo in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Elijah dramatically confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. But he also fled from Jezebel to Mount Horeb, which is the other name for Mount Sinai. And from there on Mount Horeb, he experienced the wind, the earthquake, the fire, and the whisper before God gave him directions to go anoint a new king, to go recruit a new prophet, and, and so on. So their mountaintops were essential to the ministries of, or to the work of Moses and Elijah. And here Jesus is in a mountaintop experience. Of course, there's uh, really had a lot to do with Mount Sinai in, in, in particular, but uh, whereas it's unlikely uh, that this event's happening on Mount Sinai just because Mount Sinai is south Judea, very far removed from uh, the area of Galilee that Jesus had been operating in. One last thing to mention about the presence of Moses and Elijah is that they were both key Messianic forerunners whose return was often expected with the arrival of the Messiah. Here's what I mean. The presence of Elijah in particular led to a discussion between Jesus and the apostles in which Jesus identified John the Baptist as the prophesied Elijah. You can see this in the conversation that follows Matthew chapter 17, verse 10 through 13, or in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 9, verse 11 through 13. And, 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 and so Jesus associates Elijah with John the Baptist, referencing back to uh, Malachi's prophecy, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, about Elijah returning. So Elijah is prophesied in the Old Testament as one who would return in association with the, uh, the Messiah. And here's, here's Elijah present at the Mount of Transfiguration. But we also must remember that there was a prophecy about Moses connected with the Messiah. That was that there would be a prophet like Moses who would be brought up. And here's Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And that prophecy came from Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 18. And so the presence of Elijah and Moses confirmed that Jesus was not either of them, but was in fact the Christ, whom Peter had identified 
as the Son of God earlier in the Great Confession. A lot of Jews thought, oh, Moses would return, or they thought Elijah would return. No, it was that Jesus would return, and Jesus would be that another prophet like Moses, and that John would be the forerunner announcing Jesus, and that sort of thing. The Jews were mistaken to some degree in their interpretation of those prophecies, and Jesus was ultimately the fulfillment of them. And their presence here marked that fulfillment of those prophecies. Now, I want to turn our attention to the fact that Peter makes this awkward suggestion at, upon seeing Moses and Elijah, let's build some tents for them. The Greek word translated tents is also translated tabernacles in, in the New King James Version, uh, the New American Standard Version. Uh, the New Revised Standard Version translates it dwellings, the NIV shelters, New Living Version altars. There's all kinds of terms being thrown out here. But tents and tabernacles are the standard terms that you would see. And there's two significant possibilities of what Peter is saying. It may be that Peter is suggesting that all three are worthy of being worshipped. Uh, the tabernacle, uh, as you may recall, also known as the tent of meeting, was the place where the Israelites worshipped God in the wilderness. It was built for the honor and glory of God. And maybe in the same way, Peter wanted to build three shrines, if you will, to honor Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, since all three men were in some kind of glorified state here. And maybe Peter saw them as equals and was saying that each one should be honored in the same way. And, and this may explain why Mark and Luke added a narrative note indicating that Peter didn't know what he was saying, that he was kind of out of his mind. Uh, as one commentator said, Peter was so caught up in the emotions of the moment that maybe he's speaking without really thinking. You and I have done that before. You get so caught up in something that we say what we say something that's ignorant in the moment. That could be the case here. This may even explain why the text emphasizes in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 8 that when Peter, James, and John lifted up their eyes, they said, saw no one but Jesus. Maybe because Peter's making the suggestion that they all be worshipped, Moses and Elijah are intentionally taken away so that, so that Peter and James and John are visibly shown that Jesus is the only one deserving of worship. Maybe. Another possibility is that maybe Peter is suggesting they prolong their experience there. Maybe he's suggesting that they build some temporary shelters for the purpose of spending the night there. Maybe the, the proposal he's offering is one of hospitality, one of staying in the moment, extending their time on the mountain so that they can benefit from uh, the presence and the teaching of Moses and Elijah. If Peter wanted to make a dwelling place for the three so as to encourage them to stay longer, then the phrase, it is good for us to be here in Matthew chapter 17, verse 4, means not that it is good that Peter, James, and John can help put up the tent, but that it is good that they are all, all that, that, that all of the participants can preserve this moment for some length of time. That's maybe another possibility. I don't know which way to go. It's just awkward. And the Gospels note that, right? Kurt. I just got a vivid image of what life is like in the Davis household. <laughs> uh, a great little image for us there, Kurt. Mike. That's very true. The foot and mouth disease of Peter. Yeah. And so the one, the, the, but the one who does know what to say in this moment is God. 
So let's note what he says. Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, God said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Where have we heard that before? Or at least the bulk of that before? Baptism. It's interesting because God makes this public proclamation. I, maybe public isn't the right word. God makes this proclamation about Jesus at the beginning of his, his ministry, at his baptism. And God repeats it here at the transfiguration. And, and, and for you and I, it doesn't feel like the transfiguration is really the beginning of anything, but it kind of is. It's kind of the beginning of the end. Because from this point forward, everything is moving towards Jerusalem. Everything's moving towards the cross. Everything's moving towards his death. And so while it's not the beginning sense of what you and I typically know of something being a, a beginning point, it, it's kind of the start of the end for Jesus. And so it's like, it's like God is endorsing Jesus on the front of his ministry at his baptism and endorsing him at the front of his downfall at the transfiguration, if you will. Um, it's, also, it's also neat to me. I've referenced this a couple times, that the great confession preceded the transfiguration. And the, and the question of the great confession was, who does man say that I am? And then who do you, the apostles, say that I am? The transfiguration is answering the question, who does God say that Jesus is? And it's almost set up to be the confirmation of the confession Peter made just a few verses earlier. You say that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, guess what? That's who God says he is too. These two stories being back-to-back, -back, there's something important about that. But on this occasion, when, when God says, This is my son, beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, he adds on something else that he did not say at the baptism. He adds on three words, Listen to him. I think that's significant for two reasons. One, when Peter gave that great confession and said, This is Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus then started saying, all right, I got to go to Jerusalem. I got to be killed. Do you know what Peter did not do? He did not listen to Jesus. <laughs> he said, no, nope, not, not happening. Nope, I'm taking over this. I'm going to control, I'm going I'm to fix this. Don't worry about it. He wasn't listening to Jesus. It's almost like God saying, okay, Peter, you need to stop talking and you need to listen. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. But there is another reason why this statement is present and probably more significant than that. It has to do with that prophecy of, of uh, Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 18, in verse 15 this time. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So that little three-word phrase, listen to him, echoes back to the prophecy about another prophet, a messianic prophecy said by Moses years earlier. And remember, Moses was just right there. So we shouldn't underestimate the importance of that last little part that's added on here that makes this statement just slightly different from the one at Jesus' baptism. One final thought before uh, we're out of time. I want you to think with me for a moment. Who is the transfiguration designed to benefit? Who benefited from this mountaintop experience? Was it Jesus or was it the apostles? What do you think? All right. Why do you think it was Jesus? Because he was human. Let's get more specific than that. What was that? He was glorified? Okay. How else does this benefit Jesus? Encouragement. Well, he, yeah, he intentionally ascended this mountain for a time of prayer. He often did that in, in need of encouragement. Think, think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, when, he's, when he's out there praying and the, the sweat like blood is dropping, we find out after, after, his, after his prayer, angels come and minister to him, that sort of thing. So in, encouragement factor. Um, also, you have Moses and Elijah conversing about his departure. There's some element here where their conversation is intended to help him. 
And also, Jesus is there hearing his confirmation once again from his Father. The approval of, of God the Father, the pride that he's speaking toward, about his Son, just like at his baptism. So there's an obvious benefit for Jesus. I think that can get overlooked. That we so often look at this from the lens of, of, of the apostles, of fellow disciples. And we forget that Jesus is completely human, as Mike, as Mike alluded to. He's completely human. There are things he needs help with in this, in this mortal, flawed, limited body. He needed, he needed the benefit of the Mount of Transfiguration as much as anybody. Of course, then we talk about the, the benefit it was for the apostles. The, the Transfiguration confirmed the identity and the impending death of Jesus for Peter, James, and John. Two subjects that had raised questions for them earlier. Everything that happened at the Great Confession is confirmed for them. They, 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 know, they know that Jesus is the Son of God, and they now know He has to depart. And then God's voice gave instruction to Peter, James, and John to listen to Jesus. Just a great reminder for them. To hear the almighty God tell you, listen to Jesus. I can stand up here every Sunday till my voice is gone telling you to listen to Jesus, but it ain't going to have the same effect. Brother Gene could come up here and do it. He's way more respected than me. It ain't going to have the same effect. If you hear God say, listen to my son, you can't ignore that. And as we noted in, in Peter's own writings and John's own writings, they're able to say that they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty, that they beheld his glory. They were able to confirm something about Jesus from that day forward. They were able to tell of this story after his resurrection. They were able to speak about his glorification here. This was to benefit them too. Transfiguration is this one unique event that just, it's kind of unusual when you compare it to everything else that happens in the life of Jesus. It's not a miracle story. It's, it's not a, a, a teaching story. It's kind of it's its own unique event. And it's an event that helps Jesus, and it's an event that helps those who follow him. And so tonight we, we draw to a close with our study of the Transfiguration. Really, it should have involved a study of the Great Confession as well. I just knew I didn't have time. Um, but I thank you for your attention, for your participation, and we'll continue our study next week. Let's close out with a quick word of prayer. Lord God of heaven, we draw our study to a close, and we're thankful uh, for our ability to dive into your word and to, to learn about these events in Jesus' life. Lord, we, we, we hope and, and we pray that, that, that we can listen to him like you instructed Peter, James, and John to do. Help us to, to, to follow him as we've been instructed to do. And Lord, we ask for your blessings that as we leave here tonight, that we will represent you to the best of our ability. And Lord, may we never take for granted what you've done for us. It is through the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray.